these are just some of the movies that he's written. Mr. Mom, National Lampoon's Vacation, 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, Banger, Weird Science, Banger, Pretty in Pink, Banger, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Banger, just fucking hit after hit after hit, Some Kind of Wonderful, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Uncle Buck, and I'm, I'm skipping movies here, like through his IMDb, by the way. This is how prolific this guy is. Home Alone. Yes, that Home Alone. Macaulay Culkin, Home Alone. Curly Sue. The Beethoven movies. It's insane. His level of output. What up, folks? What's going on? Welcome to the Spun Today podcast, the only podcast that is anchored in writing, but unlimited in scope. I'm your host, Tony Ortiz, and I appreciate you listening. In this episode, I tell you about a cool John Hughes documentary that I stumbled upon on the old YouTube. I also recap and review watching the movie You People on Netflix, as well as the TV series The Bear season one, which is available on Hulu. And last but certainly not least, I add another addition to our goats doing goat shit segment. Definitely stick around to see who made the list this time around. But first, I wanted to tell each and every one of you fine folks listening about a great way that you can help support this podcast if you so choose. Your support means a ton. It helps fuel the motivation to continue to crank out these episodes and is greatly appreciated. So here's a very quick way that you can help support the show, and then we'll jump right into the episode. If you're a fellow creative, a cool way that you can help support the Spun Today podcast and actually be part of the podcast is by filling out my five-question questionnaire located at spuntoday.com forward slash questionnaire. Here you'll find five open questions related to your craft, your art, what inspires you to create, what type of unrelated hobbies you're into, and what motivates you to get your work done. You can choose to remain anonymous or plug your website and your work. And once you submit your questionnaire, I read your responses on a future episode of the Spun Today podcast. It's completely free at no cost to you. And what I like to say about it is that if your responses could potentially spark inspiration in someone else, why not share that? SpunToday.com forward slash questionnaire. John Hughes, for those of you who don't know, is one of the most prolific screenwriters that I know of, responsible for some of my favorite movies growing up, and definitely labeled by many folks as the voice of a generation, that generation being around the 1980s, early 1990s. And I've always been a fan of his, like I mentioned, definitely from a writing perspective, put him up there on a pedestal of goals I would like to target and achieve and maybe not even achieve, but just to strive for one day, that level of prolific and not necessarily within screenplays and movie making necessarily or exclusively rather, but just from a writing perspective in general. And I definitely do want to take some of my short stories, definitely novels and write screenplay versions of them. That's definitely on my bucket list. But in terms of being as prolific as a John Hughes, that's just more of a gold star standard type of thing right like like a kid loving basketball and wanting to be the next Kobe Bryant or something like that but I digress these are just some of the movies that he's written 
Mr. Mom, National Lampoon's Vacation, 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, Banger, Weird Science, Banger, Pretty in Pink, Banger, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Banger, just fucking hit after hit after hit, Some Kind of Wonderful, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Uncle Buck, and I'm, I'm skipping movies here, like through his IMDb, by the way, this is how prolific this guy is, Home Alone, yes, that Home Alone, Macaulay Culkin Home Alone, Curly Sue, the Beethoven movies, it's insane, his level of output, Dennis the Menace, and it's not like, these movies came out in 83, 84, well, multiple movies in 83, multiple movies in 84, multiple movies in 1985, multiple movies in 1986, multiple movies in 1987, 1988, 1989, 1990, 91. His level of output is, I'm just in awe of it. It's insane. And I could be naive to the fact, but I literally don't know of anyone else with that type of track record in terms of screenwriting and just classic after classic after classic after classic. He literally was like that voice of a generation. But anyway, a big fan, obviously, but didn't know much about him. I knew he died young, which I'll get to. And I knew he was responsible for writing and in some cases even directing a lot of these movies, but didn't know much about his approach to his craft or his backstory, etc. And I started looking things up online and stumbled upon a couple of half hour, not montages, but like excerpts from other documentaries that have been made on him. And I couldn't find the actual documentary to attribute it to, but it was just someone that like ripped uh, different excerpts from a specific documentary and made two half hour chunks. So an hour's worth of material, both of which I linked to in the episode notes. If you guys want to check them out yourselves. Uh, the titles are John Hughes, The Voice of a Generation, and Heartbreak and Triumph, the, Le- the Legacy of John Hughes. But from those, I wanted to share a few things that definitely resonated with me. In terms of a writing style, this one definitely hit home because it's the way that when I write a short story or am working on a novel, this is a pretty much my process. And he said that he thinks about an idea for a long time and he knows how it's going to go and who the characters are because again he's like constantly thinking about ideas in the back of his head so he said the writing part itself isn't hard because it's like as he's writing he's seeing the movie in his head because he's you know molded over so much so he feels like he's seeing the movie in his head as he writes and it's just like watching a movie very slowly and being able to change aspects of the movie in real time and that's definitely similar to my writing process so it was comforting to hear from someone on his level because there are at least for me and i know it's the same for other creatives it's definitely not a, a unique thought here but speaking for me specifically there's always a level of insecurity when you're doing something creative you're putting something together you don't know if you're doing it quote unquote right whatever that means is there a traditional process that should be followed here what rules am I breaking? What rules should I be breaking? What rules should I not be making? Uh, breaking rather. What are the rules? Are people gonna like this? Is it gonna resonate? All those types of insecure written thoughts are within the act of creating, in my opinion. It takes a certain amount of vulnerability to put yourself out there like that, to put your creative work out there like that. And it's just, you never know, right? 
So that was definitely comforting to see that his process was similar to mine, at least in, in that respect. Also, he worked in advertising. He had a copy editing job and didn't start pursuing writing screenplays and movies until he was 30 years old. That's when he literally left the corporate world and started pursuing his dream, which I thought was pretty cool. And probably in retrospect, and this part is just speculation, but that probably fueled, at least in part, how prolific he was. You know, maybe he had a sense of, I have to catch up. You know, I haven't been writing for as long as these other writers in the industry that have just done this. I, you know, had a whole different life and career for 30 years or until the age of 30, rather. So I got to step up my grind that much more to make up for lost time. Again, I'm speculating that piece, but wouldn't be surprised if that was the case there. He also said in these uh, documentary clips that he reads dialogue out loud, which is definitely a, a tip that I would recommend. Something, again, that I do that I've gotten from other writers and, and writing tips. This next piece that he shared is something that I have attempted to do and have done, but very, very surface level, specific to my novel Fractal and also in this other novel that I never put out and never completed it actually. Plants circle back to it sometime in the future. I don't think I've ever even spoken about it here. But it's a story based in India that I started writing as a short story while I was in India. And it's just like one of those manuscripts that you, know, you start and never finish. But in that one, I attempted this as well, which was the character building. And what I did in that book and also did in, in Fractal, which for those of you who may not know, is my science fiction time travel novel available now. Spuntoday.com forward slash books if you want to check it out. But what you do is create a character card which Scrivener as a writing tool has like templates for this, which is a great base to like start off with. And you know, you can add and, and tweak whatever you want within it. But you have a character card for your character. You have their full name in there. Whether you ever mentioned their full name in the story or not is completely secondary. You have their age, you have their likes, you have their characteristics. How much do they weigh? How tall are they? What color are their eyes? What are their interests? What are a few likes of theirs? What are a few habits of theirs? What are dislikes of theirs? Pet peeves, you know, like things like that. Like you build up the character as like an actual person and you let all of that inform their dialogue or how they carry themselves and essentially them throughout the story. But you don't necessarily in the story have to say Hector's character is five, nine and works out at the gym three days a week and he eats fairly lean and he's had this habit since his dad died eight years ago etc etc like you have all that type of stuff in your character card but how that translates in the actual story that you write is just that you know Hector's a, a fit guy but you might not know those things but it is part of what motivates that character his tendencies etc anyway so I've done that type like surface level character building but John Hughes apparently did this at a much higher level with his characters and his stories which is why a lot of the characters and his stories resonated so much with us. His movies weren't really these elaborate plots. They were really character driven and they had usually kind of like a moral takeaway within them. But I'll give you two examples from, from the story in terms of his character building. Leah Thompson in one of her roles, which I believe was from Some Kind of Wonderful, where she played Amanda Jones. She said that... In the middle of her shooting, John Hughes went up to her to check her purse, you know, the like the purse that she was wearing on set. 
and opened it to make sure that it wasn't just full of tissue paper. And to her credit, it wasn't. It was filled with things that her character, Amanda Jones, would use, like the type of lipstick she used, the, you know, whatever she carried in her purse. And like, that's one level of character building, making sure that the unseen things actually exist. And that gives that level of complexity and that layer to, to that character. Even something as trivial as what's in someone's purse. Another great example of that was Alan Ruck's character, Cameron Fry, from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which by the way, this is one of the ones that John Hughes not only wrote, but he also directed it. We know from the movie that Cameron's father was like this cold, absent father figure, and his house was kind of like a museum. Everything in the house had to be in absolute pristine condition or his dad would like flip out. And with John Hughes told Alan Ruck about his character again from this character uh, building exercise from John Hughes actually writing the character is that Cameron's dad was the type of person that made sure that every single screw in all the hinges of all the doors of the house lined up perfectly straight and everything was pristine, right? We gleaned that much from what we did get from the movie. What we didn't know is that Cameron had a great relationship with his grandfather. His grandfather was really like the male figure in his life since his father was so absent and so cold. And his grandfather lived in Detroit and used to take Cameron to hockey games all the time. And he had this great bond with his grandfather. And that's why Cameron is wearing like that Flyers uh, Detroit hockey jersey in most of the movie. And that piece is all backstory, which again informs Cameron as the character, but that we don't know about. It gives his character that richness and layers that make him that much more believable to us as the viewer. And that's definitely a practice that I want to hone in more on within my writing. Another thing they touched on was that he preferred working alone, as I think most of us writers do. And creatives in general, I feel like are protective of what it is that they do. So much so that even for me, my first couple books have not been professionally edited. I try to like self-teach myself certain editing by listening to podcasts of editors. Shout out to Sean Coyne and the Story Grid podcast by leveraging editing tools like Pro Writing Aid, etc. Because even the thought of someone influencing what's written on the paper, I pull back from a bit, right? But objectively, being cognizant of the fact that my next book is being professionally edited, and I'm definitely going to give you guys an update on how that process is going during the next free writing session episode of this podcast. But understanding that all professional writers at that top tier go through multiple professional edits. And there are developmental edits, line edits, proofreading, etc., etc. And what I'm learning, and again, this is within you know, like the book writing world, what I'm learning so far in my nascent stages of the writing editing process is that a good editor is not going to, or let me take that back, not necessarily a good quote unquote editor, because I'm not making that type of judgment or determination, but the right editor for you as a writer is someone that's going to help navigate and elevate your words and your work and polish them as opposed to trying to change your manuscript into something that it's not. And that's core to their role in the editing process. But circling back to John Hughes, he had this aversion to writing by committee. 
and he admitted he you know he was spoiled a bit because he went from you know that corporate gig that he had to writing for national lampoon magazine where he had complete freedom and the editor which was in the the documentary pretty much gave him like free reign uh you know write whatever however and and whatever stories you want to write about because he thought so highly of john hughes's writing to then go from that to putting out these banger movies but then starting to generate the corporate backing and interest and stuff like that to put these films out where he puts the work in to build up these characters in the ways that i outlined earlier in terms of character building etc and create these really rich deep believable characters and stories that resonate to then be in a boardroom of 30 executives that don't know about writing let alone the backstories to each and every one of his characters and have them say oh no but wouldn't it be cool if you rode a motorcycle instead of that car meanwhile the backstory to that car is something that john hughes knows that character drives because it reminds him of his father and the car that his dad gave him when he was 16 or like something like that you know what i mean but the exec is just looking at it from the angle of oh no but put him in a motorcycle instead because motorcycles are in now and it might help us sell more tickets so he hated and struggled a lot with that aspect of the whole hollywood machine that again is definitely something that resonated and that i found interesting there another cool story related to ferris bueller he was hanging out with one of his directors i believe it was the gentleman who directed pretty in pink or one of the molly ringwall movies but they were like polishing up a script that they were going to be working on together and the guy wound up like sleeping over and john hughes pretty much like stayed up all night as he was like known for for doing and the next morning handed his director buddy like 50 pages and the guy was like 50 pages how the heck did you write 50 pages we were just supposed to write like work on three or four and john hughes's response was oh i actually didn't even get to those these are like 50 pages on something else that that i wrote that i'm not even sure what it is yet really but here give it a read let me know what you think and he gave it to him and that was the first 50 pages of ferris bueller's day off literally one of his most iconic movies written in one night and he was like known for that again being so prolific putting out so many movies as i mentioned earlier multiple bangers within the same year uh planes trains and automobiles i saw a a clip from an interview with steve martin saying that john hughes wrote that in like three or four days the entire script insane but yeah ultimately he wound up leaving hollywood because uh, again of the aforementioned not being able to like cope with that stress or like friction that he was feeling with having to navigate the hollywood machine with all of these like execs in the way and he bought the story goes he bought several acres worth of land outside of chicago chicago is where he's from by the way ferris bueller's day off like all the high school shots and a lot of the shots of i believe the breakfast club as well were shot at his actual high school that he went to in chicago just a little fun fact for you but anyway, he wound up buying a bunch of acres of land outside of Chicago and apparently did some like farming and raising animals. And according to that same director buddy of his, definitely continued writing, kept the journal all those years and continued writing screenplays that, you know, he never put out and, and books as well, which would be amazing if any of that ever got uncovered. Right. But it was just his creative outlet. You know, he needed to continue writing. And unfortunately, he wound up dying at the age of 59 super young um he was visiting his son 
in Manhattan who had just had a baby, his new grandchild, John Hughes' new grandchild. And he was walking in Manhattan and literally just had a heart attack and dropped and died. And he was survived by his wife of 39 years, which he married his high school sweetheart. They were married at 19, 20 years old. And he had two sons and four grandchildren. And that's my little recap and review of John Hughes. Round of applause for such a prolific, amazing writer. Who is definitely a North Star of mine. And again, I'll link to those documentary excerpts in the episode notes for you guys to check out. You People is a movie that is available on Netflix. Here is the official synopsis. You People follows a new couple and their families who find themselves examining modern love and family dynamics amidst clashing cultures, societal expectations, and generational differences. And as always, I want to shout out the writers, because if the Sponsor Day podcast doesn't shout out the writers, who will? This movie was written by Jonah Hill and Kenya Barris. Shout out to them. Now, my general take of this movie is that I absolutely enjoyed it. It was an actually funny comedy movie. There's always folks saying, you know, when was the last funny comedy movie that was made? They don't make them like they used to. Etc. Etc. And I agree, there are definitely few and far between. But this was an actual funny comedy movie that is also a rom com, a romantic comedy. So definitely something you can check out with wifey, as I did, or hubby if you're a young lady listening to this, or whatever floats your boat. The movie has an absolute star-studded cast, which I'm going to name drop now. You got Jonah Hill, you have Lauren London, you have Eddie Murphy, you got Julia Louise Dreyfus. You got Sam J, you got Nia Long, you got Travis Bennett, aka Taco, you got David Duchovny, which is referenced by the way in one of my favorite Ari Shafir bits of all time. You got Dion Cole, you got Elliot Gould, which is Ross and Monica's dad. You got Rhea Perlman, Mike Epps, you got Brian Greenberg from How to Make It in America, which I still say this day do not know how that show got canceled. You got Lala Anthony, and it goes on and on and on. And I'd be remiss if I didn't shout out my guy, Andrew Schultz, who plays one of uh, Jonah Hill's degenerate friends from his immediate friend group that like take him out for his bachelor party, etc. But I love that Jonah Hill, the lead in this movie, along with his best friend played by Sam Jay, who's a hilarious comic, are podcasters. And Jonah literally leaves his corporate sales job to pursue podcasting full time. Shout out to podcasters, man. Love podcasts. Probably not enough to quit my job, but (laughs) definitely do it for the love of the game, right? And the opening banter between them while the credits are still rolling is them recording an episode of their podcast and they're speaking about race relations and just going back and forth in conversational, hilarious style of podcasts. There was a cool scene that I liked where them two are going back and forth. Jonah Hill is telling his best friend Mo, played by Sam J. Jonah Hill's character named Ezra about issues that he's having with Amira, his girl played by Lauren London. And they have this complete dialogue back and forth that's written and, and spoken in Drake analogy. <laughs> it was like so funny. It was each of Dre's albums they used as a reference 
to how Ezra was feeling at the time. I thought that was clever and funny. And now Lauren London's parents are played by Eddie Murphy and Nia Long. And Eddie Murphy plays this militant black man, walks around with a Fred Hampton was murdered hoodie. Shout out to Fred Hampton, Black Panthers. And his daughter's dating a white Jewish dude, which didn't sit well. Then on the flip side, you have Jonah Hill's parents played by David Duchovny, plays his father, and Julia Louise Dreyfus plays his mother. And they play more of this pro-Jewish white progressives that are accepting of everybody and just like want to be down with everything and everyone at the same time, which rubs Amira, Lauren London's character, the wrong way because she feels like she's seen as this like token black girl that her new Jewish in-laws are like parading around as, oh, look, I have a black daughter-in-law. And it's just hilariously inappropriate. Like when they first meet their respective in-laws, Shelly, which is Julia Louise Dreyfus's character, there's like this entire scene where she's just speaking in black tropes and throwing things out there that nobody even asks her about. She just randomly says things like, Oh, and you know what I think? I think we should all kneel during the national anthem. I think it's actually more respectful if we know during the national anthem. <laughs> and I'll tell you another thing. I think cops are fucked up to black people. <laughs> and then David, the company chimes in and he was like, I agree, I agree. But to be clear, they do have an impossible job. <laughs> it's a fucking funny scene. And then Ezra, Jonah Hill's character, takes his mom aside to a different room and he's he's like yo what the fuck are you doing <laughs> like what do you nobody's even asking you all this stuff what are you even talking about why are you like clearly pandering to to Mira? just like speak to her like a normal person and then he brings her down a notch and they go back into the other room where amira laura, laura london's character and arnold david the company's character are back in the living room and david the company's character is playing the piano and singing we're just ordinary people <laughs> to amira <laughs> The John Legend song. Fucking hilarious. Another crazy scene, hilariously funny scene, um, is with Anthony Anderson, who's also in the movie. He has a barbershop, and Eddie Murphy's character takes Ezra to this barbershop. And the setting is in LA, by the way. And it's this crib run barbershop. Everybody's decked out wearing blue, and Ezra's wearing a red hoodie. Jonah Hill's character. And Eddie Murphy takes him, takes him in there. He it's like uh one of the scenes where Eddie Murphy's kind of like hazing Ezra, trying to scare him away from his daughter. But something hilarious that Anthony Anderson's character says when they walk in, Eddie Murphy's like, can I get a cut next? Anthony Anderson's character is like, yeah, yeah, you can have a seat right there. You and your pigment challenge friend can have a seat. <laughs> I just thought that was hilarious. Um, and it was a dope movie, man. The soundtrack was, was sick. You had Nipsey, Vince Staples, Meek Mill, Childish Gambino, and a bunch of others. Had great music, and it was an enjoyable watch. It was a cool rom-com, well-written. It was genuinely funny, and Schultz finally admitted that he did take part in the January 6th storming of the Capitol and confirmed that the vaccine makes you gay. So there's that as well. Shout out to everyone that made that movie possible. You people, available now on Netflix. The Bear is a new FX series that premiered in 2022. You can stream all episodes of the first season on Hulu, and this is the official synopsis. A young chef from the fine dining world returns to Chicago to run his family's sandwich shop. That synopsis definitely doesn't do it justice, but I guess gives you an okay idea of what the show is about. 
It's also listed online as a comedy drama. I think within Hulu itself, which is where, where I watched it, it's listed as a comedy, which I definitely do not see the series as. The comedy drama genre, I think is a bit more fitting because it does have some funny parts, but I definitely see this series more through the lens of it being a dramatic show. Now, let me give a quick shout out to each of the writers, because again, if we don't shout out the writers here on the Spun Today podcast, who will? Starting with Karen Joseph Adcock, Sophia Levitsky Weiss, Alexander O'Keefe, Christopher Storer, which is also the creator, by the way, Joanna Callow, Renee Gube, and Catherine Shetina. Let's hear a round of applause for each and every one of those great writers that put together an amazing first season of The Bear. Because the writing in the series absolutely really does stand out. And what stands out even more for me in this series in particular is the acting. I think every single person in this series I had never seen in anything else. And each and every one of them, of all the main characters, gave amazing performances. Like super believable. I was very invested in multiple of the characters. I cared about what they cared about. And that's ultimately a testament to great writing and amazing acting that's able to deliver what's on the page. Oh, and I'm lying, by the way, Maddie Matheson is in this. He's more of like a a side-ish kind of character. It was definitely definitely cool cool to see in this. Now, like I said before, the synopsis doesn't really do it justice. You have the main character, Carmen, aka Carmi, played by Jeremy Allen White, who is this superstar, fine dining chef phenom character as we you learn throughout the series, working at all the top end restaurants all around the world, on the cover of all the fine dining magazines as the youngest chef to ever achieve everything that he achieved within that world, etc. And he returns home to Chicago. Shout out to Chicago, by the way. This is like the Chicago episode after speaking about John Hughes and, and now this. <laughs> but he returns home to run this hole in the wall family restaurant that was passed down from his father to his older brother, who we know has passed away, but uh, I'm not gonna spoil for you all how. There's some like depth and mystery around that, and we learned that probably mid-season. And it's a short season, by the way, only eight episodes. And we see him returning home and dealing with the juxtaposition of this fine dining world that he's coming from into this hole in the wall, mainly sandwich shop restaurant and now he's largely taken upon himself to fix and turn around and make into something. And later on in the series, we also find out why. Meaning why he's even taking this on as opposed to just like selling it, cutting his, you know, his family's losses and, and moving on with, with his life. And in that restaurant setting is where we get to know all these rich characters that work within the restaurant. And used to work obviously with his brother, some even with his dad, Carmi himself, plays an amazing, is an amazing character. Very close second in the series, I would say, is Richard, aka Richie, aka Cousin. They call each other Cousin, even though they're not really cousins. Richie was his brother's best friend, but they all like grew up together. And Richie's pretty much running the show and was his brother's right hand in the restaurant and in life, his best friend, etc. But his character, he just does a fantastic job. And I just wanted to share a couple moments throughout the series that resonated with me, as I usually do. Uh, absolutely recommend you guys watching the series in its entirety. 
oh, and I'm lying by the way of not knowing any of the actors within the series. Two more are John Bernthal, of course, who played Michael, which is the brother that died. He is in some like flashback scenes. And we have Uncle Jimmy, played by Oliver Platt, which also does an amazing job. And he plays like this pseudo mafioso type of character and surprisingly plays a really good wise guy, in my opinion. But ultimately, we find out that Uncle Jimmy gave Michael, lent Michael, about $300,000. And now, aside from Carmi having to turn this business around and, and turn it into something, he has to pay back his brother's debt to his uncle, which his uncle is not really strong on arming him. He even gave him an out. He was like, listen, why don't you just, just sell me the place and we call it, call it even and I'll you know flip it, turn it into something else, something that's not, not a restaurant. But Carmi's insistent in turning the restaurant around and tells his uncle no that you know he'll take on the debt and he'll pay him back everything. And in a scene between them two, between Uncle Jimmy and Carmi, speaking about this uh, three hundred thousand dollar hole that he's in, Uncle Jimmy gives him delivers a a line that I thought was pretty dope, which is, "You can't start from fucked." That was definitely a, a good line there. Another line in a different scene, different episode from Uncle Jimmy was him speaking to Carm about his brother, Uncle Jimmy's brother, which is Carm's father, the one that originally had the restaurant. He told him he was, uh, they were speaking about like them growing up as kids and Uncle Jimmy told him that he was like, we, we were close in age, so we were more like friends than family, you know? We had the same kind of problems around the same time. So we had a lot to talk about. And I thought that was pretty dope and an interesting takeaway for me in terms of relationships and how true that is like that aspect of having the same kind of problems around the same time when you share that type of experience with someone you have that more kind of like friendship based relationship whether there's a sibling or a friend as opposed to having the same kind of problems at different times where then a sibling or a father figure or an older friend becomes more of like a mentor in your life where they can tell you, hey, this is what I went through in such and such situation that you may be going through now and in part like words of wisdom kind of. But it's a completely different type of relationship and dynamic when you are going through the same kinds of problems around the same time. Definitely gives you much more to speak about because you're openly vulnerable about certain situations because you're both trying to figure shit out. I just never, never heard that put that way. So I thought that was interesting. There was a great scene between Carmi and Richie when they're like in the back of the restaurant, smoking a cigarette, just like exhausted from the day. And Carmi asks him, he goes, is there a name for the, the thing where you're afraid for something to go good or something good happening because you think something bad is going to happen right after it? And then Richie replies, I don't know, life. And I thought that was a, a dope, cynical take. The dialogue in this series is great. I think that's what I gravitate most towards, as usual. Then there's a scene between Natalie, aka Sugar, played by Abby Elliott, which is Carmi's sister. And they're in the office of the restaurant digging around for some paperwork that their deceased brother, like, misfiled. And now the sister, the IRS is coming after the sister because she has a house. And it was, like, in the family name or something like that. And they have to find this paperwork. But they have a heart-to-heart -heart type of conversation because the sister's like, yo, you're so distant. You never reach out. And you never ask me how I'm doing. You know, I lost a brother too. It's not just you. Then Carmi, who has at his sister's advice been going to 
like a NA meetings, Narcotics Anonymous, putting up there and dealing with some of the feelings that, that he's having. He tells her this like dope piece of dialogue, uh, which was, quote, I guess all the time I feel like I'm kind of trapped because I can't describe how I'm feeling. So to ask somebody else how they're feeling, that just seems like, I don't know, insane. But I am sorry because you're right. And I do want to know how you're feeling. And that was definitely a, a dope moment for their two characters. And then there's a, a scene towards the end of the series where Carmi in one of these like NA meetings gives this great monologue that explains why he feels he's back and really trying to make this restaurant work, etc. Really touching, amazing acting. And it was interesting how his brother pushed him away when he was younger and didn't like want him to go to the restaurant and him going into cooking and being a chef was kind of like a fuck you to his brother and he felt that the better he got at that the deeper he got into his craft the more strained his relationship with his brother got so the better he would get in one the worse it would be with the other and then him being back home and trying to turn the restaurant around and trying to fix the restaurant was symbolic of him trying to fix that strain that always existed between him and his brother. And that was a, a dope correlation that I honestly didn't really put together until he actually delivered that monologue during that meeting. But definitely check it out, folks. It's a great show. Very short number of episodes, only eight episodes. It's called The Bear, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Goats doing goat shit. Jay-Z is making yet another appearance on this list. I think that makes it thrice, if I remember correctly. And if you subscribe to my YouTube channel, you can check out the Goats doing goat shit playlist and verify for yourselves. Now, this is a segment where I like to highlight goats within their respective rights. Goats being the acronym greatest of all time for the uninitiated. Doing something exceptional, doing something out of the ordinary, even for them. So aside from the Ace of Spade spirit, which I broke down in a previous Goats doing Goat shit segment related to Jay-Z, Jay-Z also owns Duce within his liquor portfolio, which he owns under SC Liquor LLC. SC, of course, for Sean Carter. And I love the simplicity even of the, the name of his LLC there. But he owns 50% of Duce in collaboration or in partnership with Bacardi, which owns the other 50%. Now, Jay-Z maintained that Duce was worth a minimum of $3 billion, billion with a B. And Bacardi, again, his 50% partner in ownership of Duce, was like, nah, it's not worth that much. So Jay-Z put his money where his mouth is and made a bid to purchase Bacardi's 50% stake for $1.5 billion, which would value the company at the $3 billion that he's saying it's worth. Bacardi rejected it, again, sticking to their guns and saying, Duce is not worth $3 billion. We offer you, Jay-Z, $500 million for your 50% stake in Duce. And Jay-Z, knowing what this Duce spirit and the branding behind it, obviously with uh, the push of his celebrity, knowing what it's worth, and I'm sure having a team of accountants able to quantify sales within that realm of spirits, declines the $500 million offer from Bacardi. And says, nah, I want you guys to show me the accounting. Show me why you're valuing it at just $1 billion Because you're offering me 
500 million for my 50%. So that means you guys are valuing the company at 1 billion and I'm saying it's worth 3 billion. So let's go to court, figure this shit out, open up your books, show me your accounting. And Jay-Z audited Bacardi. And he's doing that, by the way, to leverage that information and sell his 50% stake to someone else. So he's like, we have to firm up the, the value of this company, right? In order for me to, to sell my, my 50% stake. And this all resulted in, after a couple years of deliberation, Bacardi settling with Jay-Z, paying him $750 million for a 25.01% stake. So out of the 50% that Jay-Z owns, they paid him $750 million. Remember, they, were, they offered him $500 million, so $250 million less, for the entire 50% piece of the pie. Now they had to settle after opening up their books by paying Jay-Z $750 million for the 25% stake, 25.01 to be precise, which values the company at the original $3 billion that Jay-Z maintained all along. And the cherry on top is that Jay-Z still retains the other 25% or 24.99%, again, to be precise, in ownership of Duce, which will obviously give him a vested interest in the company, which is a win-win from a Bacardi perspective as well, continuing to push the brand and making it grow. Shout out to Jay for sticking to his guns, knowing his worth, and ultimately getting paid. And that, folks, was episode 228 of the Spun Today podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I really, really appreciate each and every one of you for doing so. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on YouTube, as well as wherever you are listening to this episode. Please stick around for a couple ways that you can help support the Spun Today podcast if you so choose. And again, your support means a ton. It helps me keep the lights on and, more importantly, fuels the fire that motivates me to continue putting out this show. Peace. What's up, folks? Tony here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast as much as I enjoy producing it for you. Here are a few quick ways that you can help support this show. You can support the Spun Today podcast by going to spuntoday.com forward slash support. There you'll find my merch section where you can cop the iconic podcasts versus anybody t-shirt in a wide variety of different colors and all different sizes. Also, if you're into cycling, you can cop the super soft, comfortable, minimalist design Spun Today Bike Club t-shirt. Also available in a bunch of different colors and all different sizes. There are a few other designs of different types of t-shirts. Definitely go there and check it out. SpunToday.com forward slash support. It's the merch section. We can also get a dope coffee mug. I have coffee mugs with the brand new redesigned Spun Today logo on one side and the tagline that I end every show with on the other which is start taking steps in the general direction of your dreams. The mug is available in both black and white because we don't discriminate here at the Spun Today podcast. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash support and check out the merch section. You can support the Spun Today podcast by checking out my writing. You can go to spuntoday.com forward slash free writing and check out some of my free association writing, which is intended to be some cathartic free writing but oftentimes doubles down as motivation for myself and others. At spuntoday.com forward slash short stories, you can read a bunch of the different short stories that I've written and actually listen to the audiobook versions of those short stories there as well. Another way you can help support my writing is by going to spuntoday.com forward slash books and checking out what I have in store for sale. 
digital copies are available in all formats, whether it be Kindle, iBooks, or a different type of e-reader. You can also purchase paperback copies if that's your preferred reading method. Currently available, I have my nonfiction, Make Way For You, which is a collection of freely written thoughts that were curated and put together as tips for getting out of your own way. Also available is my debut time travel novel titled Fractal. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash books to show your support. Support the Spun Today podcast by following me on social at Spun Today on Twitter, at Spun Today on Instagram. Please also check out and like my Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Spun Today, and subscribe to my YouTube page as well. On my YouTube page, not only will you get these full length episodes, but you'll also get to check out some chopped up clips and bonus content. To get to my YouTube page, just search Spun Today on YouTube or click on any of the YouTube icons on the footer of my website. Also, don't forget to rate and review this podcast wherever it is that you're listening. It really does help. The Spun Today newsletter is available to each and every one of my listeners absolutely for free. All you have to do is go to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe and drop in your email address. What I'm going to do is brighten up everybody's least favorite day of the week by delivering five curated things within my weekly newsletter every Monday at noon. You're going to receive a photo of the week, a recommended podcast of the week. I listen to tons of podcasts from an array of varied interests. I cherry pick the very best ones so that you can check them out. I also share a video of the week, which can be anything from a tasty recipe to a dope rap battle to an enlightening TED talk. I also share a quote of the week. And finally, for my fellow wordsmiths out there, a word of the week so that you can step up your vocab. Again, this curated list is yours absolutely free by going to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe and dropping in your email address and you can unsubscribe at any time. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe, drop in your email address and you'll get the very next one. If you want to help support the Spun Today podcast financially, you can do so by going to spuntoday.com forward slash support. Here you'll find a few different ways that you can do so. You can shop on Amazon, but first go to my website, spuntoday.com forward slash support. Click on the Amazon banner, which will take you to Amazon's website where you do your shopping like you normally do. It will not cost you anything extra, but I will get credit for driving traffic to their website. Another cool way that you can help support this show is through Patreon, where you can set up reoccurring donations to my podcast, whether it be $1 per show, $2 per show, etc. And depending on how much you choose to pledge, you will receive some Patreon perks in return. Things like free writing pieces, free bookmarks, free digital copies of my books, etc. Again, my Patreon link can be found at spuntoday.com forward slash support. You can also set up similar reoccurring payments via my Ko-fi page. And if you want to send a one-time happiness bomb donation, if you will, you can do so via my PayPal link. Again, all of which can be found at spuntoday.com forward slash support. If you're a fellow creative, a cool way that you can help support the Spun Today podcast and actually be part of the podcast is by filling out my five-question questionnaire located at spuntoday.com forward slash questionnaire. Here you'll find the five open questions related to your craft, your art, what inspires you to create, what type of unrelated hobbies you're into, and what motivates you to get your work done. You can choose to remain anonymous or plug your website and your work. 
And once you submit your questionnaire, I read your responses on a future episode of the Spun Today podcast. It's completely free at no cost to you. And what I like to say about it is that if your responses could potentially spark inspiration in someone else, why not share that? SpunToday.com forward slash questionnaire. And as always, folks, substitute the mysticism with hard work and start taking steps in the general direction of your dreams. Thanks for listening. I love you, Aiden. I love you, Daddy. I love you, Grayson. I love you, Daddy.